Hey folks, I'm so happy to see you. Today, we will be dismantling the romanticism of Amish and plain folks in TV shows, movies, books, and media. So, grab your hats and bonnets, hold your bucky seats, make sure your horses are well watered, make sure you have plenty of water to drink, and don't be surprised if you feel the need to have a brandy old-fashioned after this. It's time to giddy up and go. Let's start this show. Good evening, folks. Welcome to our third and final installment of how difficult we are as women. Do you feel like we're difficult? Or is it more or less just a label? Oh, hi. I'm here with Stephanie, everybody. Sorry. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Stephanie. Um, I'm difficult. Yeah, let's, sure. By the standards of patriarchy, yes, we are difficult because we won't shut up is that it if you're not difficult by the standards of patriarchy uh are you even living are you even living <laughs> i'm sorry right there with you like that's how i feel okay so yep. anyways so we've been dissecting this whole thing with harvey i just i just want to be done re-watching this video so last time we had ended on a note where I asked him a very interesting question. So we're going to pick up right where we left off and we're going to start but with my that question. question. For you is, is like, when do you think that Amish and Anabaptist churches will start holding that same amount of compassion for victims that they put out for offenders? Well, I think this varies a lot from one community to another. Uh, whether they're Mennonite, Amish, uh, Mormon, uh, Methodist, uh, Muslim. rights, Jehovah's yeah. Witnesses. Yeah, exactly. It, you know. So I, I think more and more people are beginning to be uh, more conscious. They uh, have a better understanding of the seriousness of trauma of this kind and are being very active in creating there's a kind of movement called safe churches where uh, that just gives a whole lot of guidance as to, you know, the selection of youth sponsors, of teachers, of mentors in the congregation, that people are carefully vetted and, you know, you know, being people who are truly trustworthy. And uh, once you break that trust, then you're just not going to be a candidate for certain kinds of positions in the church uh, for at least. I, I have to pause this. Didn't he earlier say that like convicted sex offenders can hold positions in the church? Um, I don't know. Did he? Or does that come later? I mean, I, I know, know you 
I don't think I've heard that yet in here. Okay. Um, long, long time. Go ahead. Can you clarify your, okay. I just want to make sure that I heard your original question, right? Did you ask him when you said, when are we going to have the same sympathy for survivors that we do for perpetrators? Did you name the Amish and Mennonite specifically? I said, when are churches going to um, have the same empathy? And when are oh. Amish? I believe I said, when are Amish and Anabaptists? But I can go back and we can. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm just because he's he's rambling and diffusing here a lot. And I'm just curious what the original question was. Just. Yeah. Uh, wait. Was this it? No. It's still a little bit before that. Why is this doing this? Do wrong to you. It's okay. So, uh, I also believe in owning evil behavior. Same amount of compassion for victims that they want to. But my question for you is, is like, when do you think that Amish and Anabaptist churches will start holding that same amount of compassion for victims that they put out for offenders. So, yes. Yes. Yeah, you were specific, and then he went to Mormon, Muslim, Methodist. No, yep. you asked about Amish and Anabaptist specifically. And particularly when you're talking about conservative and sectarian Anabaptists, this entire safe church movement that he's talking about, like, I don't feel like it's particularly relevant. Do you? I don't even know what he's talking about. If he's talking about the Amish abuse awareness community uh, committees, like how they're those guys, like, what are they actually doing? And yeah. if he's talking about ASA, like again, the there's just there it's so problematic. Like the the whole it's a fear-based teaching. It's all about like um let's let's fear our abusers into not offending and let's silence the victims by fear. Yeah. So I mean what I'm getting from, like, what he's describing sounds to me more like the sort of safe sanctuary movement within more mainstream Christianity. Um, so, like, organizations like like uh, Safe Communities in Lancaster, for instance, which is a great organization. And that that's like a matter of, you know, helping churches develop policies that make it less likely that predators who have been, at least predators who have been reported convicted in the past, um, reported and or convicted in the past, end up serving again um, in roles that put them into contact with, with the vulnerable people. But that's, that's actually not what you asked him. <laughs> that is not what I asked him. You what asked I asked him is when are they going to extend that same empathy and compassion and support that they have for the abusers to the victims of those same crimes. And yeah. I would still like to know that. Yeah. When are Amish and Anabaptist communities going to extend that same? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting how that's, yeah. 
Well, we were at like 47 something. So let's. Where that just gives a whole lot of guidance as to. We heard that. At least a long, long time. But they can still have a position in the church eventually. Well, again, my question is, we have to determine what do we do with people like that? Unless we lock them up or, or uh, you know, unless they are. Uh... I just have to pause here for a second. It's Stephanie. Did did I stutter when I said, can they hold positions in the church? No, you did not. Um, I, I think I think our friend Harvey is confused about the difference between not being allowed to serve in church positions anymore and being put in prison. Um, I guess those are the same things in his mind. This is not this is not a clear response to your question. No, it's not. We also have a commenter. <laughs> I'll get right on that. Yeah, I'll get right on that. I feel like I need that. Here, let's <laughs> let's let's take that sip of wine for communion. Oh boy. Jeez. You know, yeah. committed to the electric chair or something. So what do we do? But I, I want to do unto people like that the same as what I would see Jesus doing, same as I could see God doing. And God does not forgive people unilaterally. God does not write a blank check and say, okay, all of you guys out here on this planet, you're all now forgiven because, you know, Jesus died on the cross or for your sins or whatever. That's not the way it works. Everyone in the, on the planet is to be forgiven based on their repentance. And again, that is not just about remorse. It's about a radical uh, 180 degree transformation and change. Well, and I have another question. What about the victims of sexual assault that are required to repent in the Amish and Anabaptist churches? Well, I, I think that's just illogical, irrational. Uh, it, it should just never, that should just never happen. Do you uh, think that's harmful to the victims? Absolutely harmful. Do you think that's silencing to other victims in the congregation? Well, sure, of course. It's a, what? it's a sort of a double, sort of a, it's sort of a double tra trauma. First of all, the trauma of what happened and then the trauma of feeling like you are guilty for, you know, you're the reason this happened or whatever. It wouldn't have happened had you not done A, B, or C, or had you done, you prayed more or whatever. Mm -hmm. So they're That's traumatized uh, twice. Doubly, doubly so. Yeah, exactly. By, by the very people often that they went to for help. Okay. So we need to address the way he answered or did not answer your question about whether people who are sexually abusive can serve in church positions again. Mm -hmm. 
because he that I mean what he did was it just sort of a classic pylon of logical fallacies there because you know you asked him can people who should they be allowed to serve in church again he went to prison in the electric chair that's so not he, what I ask about he invoked capital punishment in order to <laughs> I mean, the inescapable conclusion for me is that he brought that up in order to escape answering your question about whether perpetrators of sexual abuse should be allowed to serve in church leadership positions. And this is this is this is the one that really gets under my skin because you know I direct an organization called Into Account. Our organization specializes in institutional accountability. And this idea that holding perpetrators accountable and taking away some of the communal power and privilege that they had that allowed them to access victims is equivalent to destroying their lives, locking them up and or death. That is, we fight that every day. And this, this like, that kind of evasion from somebody who's serving in a therapeutic position claiming to treat victims is unbelievable. Like, no, answer the damn question, dude. Yeah. It's it, it's just like he's 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 restate he's answering the question that you didn't ask in order to avoid answering the question that you did ask, hoping that you won't notice. It's insulting. It's it's almost like he thinks I'm stupid. That's how I, how I feel. Well, he's yeah. I mean, that is how he's talking. Yeah. Like like condescending, like rude, like yeah. 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 And then we're supposed to be Im impressed by his. You know, of course we shouldn't do that to victims. It's illogical. It's irrational. I. Whatever, dude, that's low-hanging fruit. Like, how are you answering the hard questions about accountability? Like, yep. it, it's just every time you try to get his perspective on accountability, he builds a straw man and goes after that. A straw man? Can we light the straw man on fire? Because, <laughs> I mean... Light like, everything on fire. <laughs> I mean, like, I, I just, like... Honestly, it's this, this is, is, it's not just Harvey. It's much bigger than Harvey. It's the ex, ex Anabaptist people who feel like we have to be so gentle and we have to give them credit because they're trying or they're, they have the AAA um, conferences now, or they have ASA or they have this or whatever, like people are working on it. No, stop apologizing for the behavior and hold people accountable. Where yeah. is your accountability? What accountability yeah. do you have in place? How are Amish churches holding perpetrators accountable? How are the Anabaptist churches holding perpetrators accountable? Mm -hmm. That's what we're here to discuss. Yeah. And yeah. lastly, the thing is, is that within many different denominations of church, there are the similar problems, but I'm not here to talk about those churches today in this live stream. What I'm talking about is Amish and Anabaptist churches and their child sexual assault problems. Mm -hmm. Fine. He, he yeah. He contacted you to talk to you about that stuff. Right. So 
what what we're we're now supposed to be like oh yeah uh jehovah's witnesses muslims methodists like okay if you want to speak comparatively that's a different conversation but using it to diffuse attention from the specificity of the question that you asked him is is you know at at the it's insulting it's insulting. I mean, at, at the, the most generous interpretation is that he's just not good at answering questions. But given how evasive he is every time you ask him a pointed question, I'm not inclined to give him that charitable interpretation. You know, I feel like if I took a drink from my wine glass every time he evaded a question and rewatched this video, it would be a terrible idea. It probably would, at least in a live broadcast. <laughs> Shouldn't I mean, this is, this is not, <laughs> no. this, this guy is not credible. Like, no, he's not. He's not answering questions in a credible fashion. So would you feel comfortable sending clients to him for therapy? Of course not. <laughs> when <Thank> I, you. <laughs> when I feel comfortable sending my cats to a hamburger factory, <laughs> no. Thank you. Thank you. This because is ridiculous bullshit. I agree. Anyway. Should, should we continue? Sure, let's continue. <laughs> it's really terrible and a sad state of affairs, and it happens in more than just Amish and Anabaptist churches. You're right. It happens a lot of times, and it really just, that that is something that needs to be also researched and studied because mm -hmm. it is it is happening way too often. Again, I'm not sure. I, I would like to see the results of the study that you and I both would like to see done. Uh, I'm not sure whether Anabaptists and Amish communities are necessarily have significantly more uh, sexual abuse going on, but it's especially shocking when it comes when it happens in communities that you know have such an image of being these pious great good christian people but well, i i just think it, it's everywhere as as a clinician i'm more and more convinced right. that you know the longer i'm in this profession it's everywhere um, and we just need to confront it at all uh, all fronts may i share something with you Sure. My case 17 years ago, when I reported my abusers in the Amish church, it was pretty widely known. It was on 2020 and it was written about, here's the thing, I cannot count to you how many times I have heard over and over and over, it's an isolated incident. Yeah. And that's a lie. That is a lie. I'm here to tell you that's a lie. Of but course. we only have eight minutes left. Mm -hmm. And I would like to talk a little bit about something else before we get off of here, because okay. this is a very heavy topic. Although somebody has a really interesting comment. I believe repentant offenders can have positions in the church, like pounding shingles <laughs> on the roof, mowing the yard and other activities where they do not have access to children. I do not think that, that child offenders should ever be trusted with access to children again. And I believe if they are truly repentant, they will not even desire that. 
I, I think that that's a point well taken. Uh, I don't know whether that same person would say unsupervised access. You know, I don't think we can, you know, we can't put people in a bubble where that they never have any contact with children unless it might be in a prison setting or something like that. But well, supervision is, uh, is just so important. We do have a disagreeing comment with that that just says lock them all up. Well, that's uh, I incidentally, Mary, I have I'm very much involved in prison reform, and uh, I I believe in locking people up when they are a danger to the community. Uh, uh, but I don't I don't hold up hold up. Does he think? child rapists are not a danger to the community. I mean, that's the implication that I hear. And like, I don't, this is, this one is really, I mean, I am also somebody who's very much like, I, I have very little faith in our prison system. There's a lot wrong with it. Like, you know, but he just he did really just imply that that's what i heard too um and <laughs> i just you know even if you were to take prison you know i part of why i will often say even if you take prison out of the picture is because advocates and you know people like us have very very little control over whether or not people go to prison so i'm always talking about alternative forms of accountability, I think probably for different reasons than Harvey is. But I want to say, even if people aren't going to prison, because we all know, like, in the system that we have, the vast majority of, of perpetrators do not, there are ways to keep them away from children. Like saying there's no way to keep them away from children, that is just throwing up your hands, not even trying. No, you can. And you can't assume that supervision as important as it is, if it's, you know, if you're looking at seeing somebody go into a room with a child and you know that, you know, you you suspect or know that person isn't safe, you 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 follow them, of course. But supervision is not a panacea. <laughs> How much sexual abuse happens in front of parents? Plenty. Plenty. This idea that if you if you adequately supervise perpetrators in a church setting, that you don't have to worry about it, is 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 really misguided at best. And also, I believe it's giving perpetrators access to more potential victims because he refuses. Even like because like here's the thing: is he's also a pastor, so he's in a position of power. And I would challenge him to take his position of power and take away access to future potential victims. Because right there, if you're thinking you can adequately supervise child rapists inside of your church environment. No, you, no you can't. No, one no can't. you can't. So I challenge you to remove their access to yeah. future potential victims. You like, I think the question I would want to ask Harvey is, would you ban people? Like, would you give people a lifetime ban from being able to attend services? Which isn't the same thing as, as excommunicating people. It's no. not the same thing as shunning. I mean, this is, 
when you get outside of, you know, sectarian Anabaptism, like there are lots, like (laughs) there are people who will say, you know, I will come to your house or I will get on Zoom with you and I will serve as a pastor to you. But you're not going to attend services at church anymore because there is no way to guarantee that we will not put you in contact with children and we refuse to do that. Correct. Now, you know, when it when it comes to the like the purview of of churches, churches absolutely can within their own, you know, structure <laughs> within their activities, they can say no, you you do not have access to the the to vulnerable populations of any kind anymore. You can do that if you actually do take the threat of sexual violence seriously. I don't think he does based on the things that he's saying. I don't I'm not getting the impression it, he does. Yes, I find that very concerning and problematic. Yeah. Yeah. But let's continue. Let's continue. That we should, as a society, be locking up people uh, for long, long periods of time uh, unless we are actually actively working on, we call these places departments of correction, but in fact, they are departments of punishment. And I, I just don't see value in punishment as an end in itself we need to think of protection and whatever it takes to protect society i am in favor of and in some cases people are going to have to be locked up sometimes for life but uh i i just think we have to have some way of making reasonable discernments as to the length of time and what happens when they're behind bars uh, and not just think of prisons as the, uh, you know, the all-purpose kind of response to every social problem, whether it's drugs or too many cases, mental illness. People are in jail because they are mentally ill and they behave in ways that are inappropriate and uh, they get apprehended and incarcerated. I have a question for you. So do you not think that pedophiles and perpetrators of child sexual assault are a danger to society? Of course they are. Of course they are. But I'm just saying there's more than one way of protecting people. And we will never build enough jails and prisons to protect everybody from everything. But we do need to make reasonable judgment. That's what courts are for, to make reasonable judgment as to who needs to be incarcerated and who might be under house arrest or who might be in some kind of other program of some sort where they actually get help and get corrected. Um, So you do think that there is a way to adequately supervise pedophiles or perpetrators of child sexual assault to put them around children? I I like this. Well, not unsupervised. I wouldn't. I, I really wouldn't. Uh, and not a, I think the term that was used here in the last uh, chat 
statement. I didn't get to read it all. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, a dedicated sex offender. In other words, unless that person is no longer a dedicated sex offender. But again, I would want to err on the side of caution and not just take their word for it that I am no longer a dedicated sex offender. Um, yeah, I, uh, I appreciate your comment, uh, the person, Hope, who just who posted that. But there's a, you know, there are two extremes that I want to avoid where all crimes are seen as punishable by death. That would be the ultimate maximum kind of response. Keep the community safe by just you know, ending the life of everybody who has done wrong. Or the opposite would be. Did, did, did I talk about the death penalty? Have I really talked about the death penalty anywhere in this video? No, he he's brought it up a bunch. Um, I think it's I think it's his way of moving the goalposts because he's trying to paint these two extremes, um, which is, you know, like the sort of implication is that <laughs> I uh, it's so messy because. Some of what he is saying about about prison and, you know, I mean, if you have a, a critique of of, you know, the prison industrial complex and like carceral logic as the response to all, you know, problematic behavior in our society, I'm right there with him. I mean, we we are heavily over reliant on prison and on punitive responses to all kinds of things that are categorized as crime. But it, what's frustrating about this conversation is that I'm not clear what perspective he's like, he's on the one hand, he's a pastor and a counselor. And supposedly this conversation is specifically about how Anabaptists are responding to abuse within their own communities. Anabaptists don't have the power to put anybody to death. Okay, and then on the other hand, he's making broad social pronouncements and there's no, there's no sort of like, okay, here's, here's the, here's the realm in which we have power to do this. Here's the realm in which we don't have power. This is a critique that like belongs to like our, our set, you know, our commitment as citizens to, to um, particular political ideologies. And when I say political ideology, by the way, that doesn't have a negative that doesn't have a negative connotation for me. I am very much one of those people who's like, everything is political. Uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, there is there are the politics of of prison reform and 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 or pr prison abolition. You know, there are those politics. And then there are how do we hold people accountable within our, our own communities when the courts and the carceral system and the legal system aren't there for us, which let's face it, most of the time they aren't. Yeah. Um, particularly, you know, there's a lot of abuse that is, <laughs> that is extremely hard to prove in court. There's lots of work that needs to be done within communities that we don't have carceral solutions for, you know, I mean, things like, <laughs> I mean, there, so 
he could be having people, he could be talking about that. But the fact that he keeps bringing up, well, you know, we could just put everyone to death. It's like, well, okay, if you move the goalpost all the way over there, then you, of course, it's very reasonable to say we can't have punitive solutions to everybody. We, everything, we can't just, you know, we can't just kill people. Well, you're not arguing that we're going to kill people. You're asking him yes. to clarify something, what, what he believes about accountability within Amish and Anabaptist communities specifically. That's, right? Yes. That's what I really want to know. I want to know what the church is doing to have accountability and prevention. Right. And nowhere do I hear, well, I'll say this after we get done. Um, one of our listeners thinks he has dementia or something like that. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's it's possible to be. Uh, I, I mean, the thing is, his evasion doesn't seem <laughs> bumbling to me. This kind of evasion, this kind of use of logical fallacy, um, these are deliberative argumentative techniques. It doesn't necessarily mean that he's bumbling and incompetent or that he that he has dementia, whatever. I mean, that but it <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. to me, what it communicates is he's continually trying to generalize a conversation that you are trying to make specific. Yeah. Which and I don't I mean, if he wants to have a general conversation, I'm not sure why he approached you to talk about uh, sexual abuse in, in amongst the Amish. Yeah. So I guess we'll find out if he has anything else good to say. I just, because I think you're right, Stephanie. I can't even like, I think you're right. I think it's very much a, like, this is a tactic that I feel like I've encountered so many times. I'm just like, uh, like, how do you not see this? How do people not see this? But then it's like, this is an important conversation to have because people get taken in by the logical fallacies, like you said, and, and then they believe that and they use that often. What I've seen is people using those logical fallacies to invalidate, to gaslight, to silence, and to further manipulate and harm survivors of either domestic violence or sexual assault that come from Amish and Anabaptist communities. Yeah. 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 So... But we only have three minutes left. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> not have safeguards in place, not have programs in place, not have means of uh, supervision and accountability in place to where we just say, you know, we go by people's best intentions. And if they say the right nice things, we just uh, put a Band-Aid on the problem. Marlene says, repentance has nothing to do with impulses. Someone could really desire to stop their sexual addiction to children like an addiction, like addiction to alcohol or drugs, but the urge still exists and relapse is real. Yeah, so when I you start thinking about people that have been offenders for like 30 years, because of supposedly they were being monitored and supposedly they were repentant, 
the thing that I feel that many church leaders fail to recognize or even realize is how deviant pedophiles are, mm -hmm. how much they use fear, coercion, mm -hmm. and their power to silence their victims. Well, this would be a, something for another program, and I'd love to have some other people uh, speak to this. But if, if I didn't believe as a therapist that people can change, then I may as well turn in my license and not do the kind of work I'm doing. Now, is change easy? No, absolutely not. But if it's if we are resigned to saying no change is impossible for some people, then we need to just side with people who say, lock them up, throw away the key. We can do that. But I just don't think, I, I think God has the right answer here. And it's not either of those extremes. Well, thank you for that. And on that note, we're going to actually say goodbye to everybody. I hope you all have a good night. Thank you, Harvey, for coming and sharing openly. I appreciate you. Thank you very much. And I'd be. Okay. We, we did it. We did it. Do, do you have anything to say? Well, I mean, just that what he did there at the very end is another version of like setting an extreme goalpost. <laughs> you know, he, because, you know, he said, if I didn't believe people could change as a therapist, then like, I may as well lock things, you know, I may as well give up or whatever. And, you know, it's <laughs> what, I'm what not even talking about what you believe. I literally showed him a study that talks about the rate of recidivism for convicted child sexual offenders inside of insular communities. Yeah. I showed him a writing about that. I'm not even talking about that. And what I would really like to know is what are Amish and Anabaptist churches doing in the ways of prevention, education, and doing better for future generations? Yeah. What are they doing? How are they protecting the children inside of their communities? And instead, instead of like a response to like, that specific question, which, you know, ostensibly that's what you were supposed to be talking about. You got the like, well, if I didn't believe people could change, well, we're not just talking about people in general. Like that's a like, oh, okay. Well, right. I guess, I guess you don't believe people in general can change. No, again, straw man. That's not what you said. I you, would be a life coach if I didn't believe people can't change. That's I mean, not the point. It's if you want to solve the problem of like why it is so damn hard in this society to stop people from sexually preying on each other. Why it's so it's seemingly so impossible to to stop predatory patterns from replicating <laughs> to mm -hmm. stop people who abuse other people from continuing to do so if you if you're actually interested in social transformation that ends those things you have to speak specifically about the problem you can't 
evade specific questions by by um, blathering in generalities, which is what it my perception, you know, after three sessions of going through this thing line by line is what I'm hearing him do again and again. I don't, you know, saying, I, I mean, for one thing, we both know he's wrong <laughs> about insular Anabaptist communities in general not having a problem with sexual abuse that is worse than the societal average. I think we can, you know, <laughs> we we yeah. have evidence that it is really, 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 really quite bad, even though it's bad everywhere. But beyond that, I, I'm fascinated, and I, I deal with this from mainstream Mennonites too. I'm fascinated by the propensity to when when I come to people and say, I want to talk about the problem that Mennonites have with sexual abuse, what I hear is, are we really worse than anybody else? And I'm like, I don't know. It's actually really hard to know that. But here's what I want to talk about. How do we deal with the problem that Mennonites have with sexual abuse? <laughs> I mean, these are <laughs> like, right. this well, is... And may I, may I share something? Yes, absolutely. So, like, I've had many people reach out, like, to me and contact me and talk to me about their experiences. And I can never share those stories because those are private and those are confidential. But the thing I want to point out is throughout the last, like, 17 years, there's maybe been one or two people that have actually been ex-Anabaptists that were not sexually assaulted. But that's not even the point. The point is, is that I have heard so many stories they are countless of child sexual assault and even adult sexual assault that has happened repetitively yeah so at the end of the day like i'm not saying it's worse than i'm not saying it's better than what i am saying is it is a problem and what are we doing and how are you managing the risk for somebody in your congregation to be a child abuser? How are you managing the risk for somebody in your con congregation to be a child, a child rapist? Let's, mm -hmm. let's really go there. Yeah. 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 And it's much, it's much easier to say, well, I mean, if you want to put everybody to death, whoever does anything wrong, then I guess I don't, that's, that's one way of, but that's not what I'm talking about. No, it's not. But that's how he's avoiding. That's how he's avoiding actually answering your question. Yeah. So where do we go from here? <laughs> well, uh, I mean, um, what, what I, I think part of why this whole interview is so upsetting is because listening to it as survivors like it's the same language that just like removes our humanity it's like we're pity it like in the the universe that 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 harvey's sort of creating <laughs> through his speech um survivors are pitiable objects and it's very sad what happens to them but he's not talking about them as human beings who have perspectives that could change the way uh, 
a group of people respond to these situations. He's not interested in survivor's wisdom. Like he, he, he demonstrated that he's not in the course of that interview. And so I think where we go from here is we keep doing what we're doing, like, which is like survivors are at the center of this. It's only survivors who, who understand yeah. how bad this is, how devastating this is, and what needs to be done in order to make this happen less often or not at all. Because I, I truly actually believe that it is possible to have a society without sexual violence. I don't think we're doomed to this. I hear, I actually hear more social hopelessness from people like Harvey. <laughs> I mean, ironically, I think he he's sort of trying to portray himself as somebody who's hopeful about change. But what I hear is you're continually evading the severity of the problem. And you are evading conversation about specific solutions. And when you do that, what it communicates to me is that you don't actually believe that these are things that can be tackled at a societal level. Um, <laughs> because the, the only way to tackle things at a societal level is like to respect, to respect difference, <laughs> you know, like, okay, the experience of somebody who's had a lot of social authority their whole life isn't the same as the experience of somebody who's been aggressively victimized throughout their childhood. And one of the reasons why we have so much sexual violence in our society is that the former person is viewed as a human being <laughs> and the latter person is viewed as a pitiable object. Does that make uh, sense? And the ways that which society communicates that is very often by like, well, my perception of this is, and, and they silence and they gaslight and they victimize and they like there's just this whole like it, it's like a slippery slope of where they fall into like this invalidation thing of like my perception of your problem is bigger is better than your own perception of what happened to you yes and it it perpetually it keeps being perpetuated everywhere you go like for example if somebody's trying to tell me about like um one i had somebody tell me the other day amish are all christians okay first off that's your perception second off don't try to school me on my amish heritage i'm here to tell you that that's a lie yeah. Because there are Amish folks who will literally be offended if you were to call them a Christian. So don't go around saying that. And lastly, when I say something about that, don't attack me with this whole like, well, I have Amish friends. You know what? Don't try to school me on my Amish heritage. I know what my Amish experience was, and I'm going to speak that truth. But it's just another form of like how they refuse to identify the problem or even acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. And it's like people project their own problems or their own perspectives onto other people and demand that we must only speak about it in ways that they're comfortable with. And until people actually are willing to get uncomfortable to challenge their inner bias, to challenge that belief system that they've held on to, nothing's mm -hmm. going to change. 
But the good news is, is people are willing to do that. Mm-hmm. People yeah. are willing to challenge their inner bias. People are willing to educate themselves. People are willing to name it, to, to speak their truth about it. And as long as they continue doing that, we're going to continue moving forward towards a better future for tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, that's true. Should we open for questions if anybody has any? Sure. If anybody has questions, you can write them in the comments. However, comma applause. <laughs> <laughs> I got on my pedestal and made my speech. Now it's all on Stephanie. She can say whatever she wants to say. <laughs> I mean, I this guy is is really messed up. But this has been a lot of fun <laughs> in a twisted sort of way. Did you at any point in time feel re-traumatized by listening to this? Yeah. Yeah. Would you like to share about that or is that a bad um, idea? I mean, the reason I say yes is that uh, I, um, <laughs> I mean, my, my dissertation research was on, you know, the LGBT justice movement and Mennonite Church USA. Mm -hmm. And it's, I, I mean, I think I talked a little bit about this in the first, the first session that we did, but the um, sort of evasive and um, like <laughs> evasive speech that makes broad generalizations and sort of almost like seemingly willfully misstates the um <laughs> the perspectives that are coming from from people who are marginalized in order to sort of uh <laughs> in order to seem like the objective um authority who floats above all of the big emotions um that sort of institutional voice, if you will, that maps really closely to, you know, straight, white, you know, managerial, if you will, masculinity, um, is just, you know, it's, it's so violent in this, in, in a way that like, I, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I was you know, when I was doing my research, I'd be in a room where people were having a conversation about um, about LGBT inclusion and or sexual abuse. And some people in the room would clearly be so traumatized that like, I'm seeing people who like look like they're dissociating. I'm seeing people who like are very much not okay. And then I'm seeing people who are like, yeah, I'm so glad I'm part of this church. This is so reasonable. You know, like, it's like there would be parallel universes existing in the same room. Um, and I felt I had a sense of that in, with this, you know, it's, it's just a, <laughs> there's a, there's a kind of confidence that comes from a, you know, just a particular kind of 
I mean, I want to say church bureaucrat, <laughs> which is, you know, I, what I, I have inherent authority by virtue of who I am. Um, so I'm gonna open my mouth and it doesn't really matter if I'm responding specifically to what people are asking me. What matters is that I am a person who has an in inherent authority and I'm going to open my mouth and words are going to come out. And that's all I really need to do because of this inherent God-given authority that I have. And that, that like, I, the way I'm describing it isn't very subtle, but it, it actually is very effective. <laughs> and like, that that is what it like that feels viscerally awful for me because of the experiences that i had during that research process that you know to a large degree illuminated experiences that i had had earlier you know as a child and young adult in the mennonite church I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm well, so sorry. sorry. You know, I mean, I knew I, I knew enough about Harvey when I agreed to do this that I anticipated that. You know, I am I'm familiar with yeah. enough with the way that he has you know placed himself in conversations about gender and sexuality in the Mennonite church that I you know, I knew it would be some sort of messed up. Uh, <laughs> it's. <laughs> oh, thank you, Sarah. Thank yeah. you very much, Sarah. You are not alone. You are, you not are alone. so not alone. It, I, it was so disconcerting. I got to say that. It was really, really disconcerting just to like do it and watch it. And also I have an anonymous message from a currently Amish person that says, you're right. Not all Amish are Christians. Some are atheists. Just so you know. I don't know what to tell you. This is just what I'm being told. Okay. By a currently Amish person. So um, I'm going to leave that out there for y'all. Um, I want to thank the people who who watch this. I'm I Me really too. hope all of you, if you're triggered, you know, do some really good self care if you can, and try to be gentle with yourself. And if there's like law enforcement or like district attorneys or even people in any other position of power who watch this, I hope this helps you understand what we talk about when we talk about the subversion and diversion inside of communication with Amish folks and plain folks, Anabaptists, like how they redirect the conversation to only talk about what they're wanting to talk about and never really answer the questions. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, I want to echo that for anybody who's watching who has um, institutional power to change things. Like, please don't let people like Harvey Yoder, scholars like Donald Crable and Corey Anderson and Steve Nolt, don't let those people 
speak for people who are victimized within plain communities. You have to talk to people like Mary. You have to talk to people like Mary's clients. <laughs> and if you don't know where to start, you know, reach out. Yeah. Reach out to people like Mary and listen to them. Don't speak over them and pass them like we just watched. Um, because that's the way that we can start to make things better for people who are really, really um, in danger inside inside of communities that are this sectarian and this isolated. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Mary. <laughs> we don't we don't have any more comments. I think everybody's done. Yeah. Done. So on that note, I hope everybody again do some good self-care and we'll see y'all next time. This concludes today's episode of the Disobedient Women. I share a hope all of you held on to your hats and bonnets and your buggy seats and drank lots of water. And I certainly hope that we will see you again. I hope y'all have a beautiful and wonderful day. It's time for that brandy old fashioned.